Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. I want my land. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and together? you go through that doorway to the greatest little country in the world. Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Showreel. 3CR's look at the Australian film industry and today we're going to be focusing on a film called Rockable. It's a film directed by Travis Beard and it is about Afghanistan's first metal band, District Unknown. But before we start our conversation, we'll have a little bit of the music itself. Uh, This one is called Kill the Beast. The man who's just made a film called Rockable. Actually, how long ago did you finish making Rockable? Uh, end of 2017, and we premiered at Rotterdam in 2018. Ah, that would have been interesting. What was it like taking a film about uh, rock and roll? Oh, is it rock and roll or is it punk? Well, look, I mean, the the movement was very DIY, so I would say it was very punk because it was very underground. Um, the music was everything from rock through to metal, but I used the title Rockable because I originally had a title of Martyrs of Metal. But I oh, thought that's I'd, fantastic. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. But I thought I would ostracize a certain part of the audience because there was the word metal in there. Oh, and that, right. And that's, that's, that's and maybe I was thinking martyr. 
Well, both, actually. You'd probably ostracize two different audiences. And so, therefore, I was like, I just need something a little bit sort of, not mainstream, but a little bit more towards the center. And so, Rockable came out of it. Uh, and it, it works really well because it says a lot in the title. Yeah, it does. And uh, for people who don't realize what it's about, it's about an underground music scene in Afghanistan, in Kabul. Exactly. Uh, something that uh, when I first went to Afghanistan, I went there as a journalist and I didn't expect to unearth this scene. Um, but because there was a lot of foreigners there, there was a lot of <clears throat> money in the country coming in from foreign uh, governments, there was a huge underground sort of social scene. And with that social scene, there was a sort of small music scene, bands playing, mostly cover bands and so forth. But uh, And was that to uh, cater to expats' tastes? You know, wanting to have entertainment. Yeah, expats' taste and expats' thirst for alcohol. Because actually, as, as much as Afghanistan is an Islamic republic and alcohol is forbidden, foreigners can get access to alcohol. Whether okay. it be through the UN, through um, embassies, or actually just smuggling it in yourself. And so there was a lot of alcohol. I mean, I drank more then than I drank back here in Australia, which is quite disturbing when you're in a country like, like Afghanistan. But because of so much alcohol, you needed entertainment, and DJs can only do so much, so bands sort of took their part. But the music was a bit naff, kind of, you know, classic cover bands. And so I came in and went, hey, why don't we do something a bit more with an edge? And we started bands that played original uh, scores and, um, and so songs. So did you actually... Uh Put the kindling on the fire, or were there people there already? There was thirsting? one. There was one band, and they were called White City. And the reason they were called White City is because there's a term in uh, UN security protocol that when uh, the city gets in lockdown, yeah. they use code words. And so there's White City, Grey City, Green City, Black City, etc., etc., etc. And White City is when the whole city is locked down. And so my band, before I joined, uh, was called White City. And again, they were just playing covers. And what? what instrument do you play? I was playing bass at the time. Cool, okay. Um, and I joined the band and I just played bass in the background, just did what I had to do. But over time, I kind of moved the band more towards originals and more towards punk rock, away from classic covers. And before we knew it, we had four bands in the scene. And then that grew and that grew and then we had a whole scene that sort of flourished from there. Oh, that's fantastic. And so you're actually following a particular group called District Unknown. Exactly. So because I had one of the only practice rooms in Kabul, I got contacted by one friend who said, hey, I've got these two boys who are interested in metal. They're cousins. And I went, oh, yeah, cool. And then a couple of weeks later, someone else contacted me. How did they get to be interested in metal? YouTube. I mean, the internet was in Afghanistan. It's not like Iran where they have a lot of uh, restrictions on their, on their internet. It's quite open so they can watch their heroes in a sense. And then there's other friend called me and said, hey, I've got two f- brothers who are into metal. And I said, wait, 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 we got these, took these four men in Kabul who are seeking the same thing. Let's bring them together. I had the practice room. We brought them in. And I just had instruments and a semi-soundproof room. It wasn't very soundproof. And we just let them smash it out for six months. And they were absolutely terrible. But they had that teenage kind of angst and also teenage thirst to discover their own pathway through music. So did they learn their instruments through practice? They didn't know anything when they first came in. They literally didn't even know how to play chords. They could do one-finger solos, that kind of stuff. So we mentored them as well and taught them about, you know, the fundamentals of music. And then they did a lot of that YouTube kind of uh, education that that kids do. And And is there any influence of the traditional musical instruments that they have 
in that, Afghanistan? That came later as they started to write their own music. At the start, yeah. they were just covering their heroes. Cool. And as we wanted to sort of move them into actually expressing themselves and writing their own music, they started to write music in their own language. They started wow. to talk about the issues at hand, like civilian casualties and the foreign presence in their country. And they started to bring in more melodic sort of scales and, 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 and progressions that were indicative of their own culture. What, what, what they feel and hear yeah, and, and understand. So there's a kind of a, a Central Asian kind of feel to their That's music fantastic. as well. Yeah, it's really cool in a sense. Um, and I let them discover that and then obviously in sort of gave them enthusiasm like, yes, you're going in the right direction, keep doing that rather than just playing some covers of Metallica and Slayer and so forth. Nothing wrong with those songs. They're great. But, you know, you should be, you know, searching your own uh, sort of musical styles and influences. Oh, well, yeah. And also considering that you're in Afghanistan, that is quite a separate place from the Western influences that they're actually imbibing. Yeah, I mean, look, we were always we were always uh, knowledgeable of our presence, our presence as the West coming into this country and you know introducing these these cultural kind of uh, differences and so forth. But we also didn't want to hijack them and turn them into a Western rock band. We wanted no. them to sort yeah. of to explore their own uh, roots and backgrounds, and therefore we kind of just gave them the tools, the bricks to build, and therefore we just let them go. And they would come and go, hey, we've got this new song. We want to play this thing. We're like, oh, yeah, cool, play it. And we go, yeah, that's cool. You need to move this, change that, whatever. But your essence is there and, can- and carry on. And, so and, the- and also, because they're young, it's loud. Oh, it was really loud, yes. Yeah, really loud. And this was one of the biggest difficulties we had because soundproofing was, was, was a new art form in Afghanistan in regards to how you build your rooms. And we tried a lot of different ways to soundproof a room. But we'd always get neighbours complaining, and I moved houses like four times in five years. Oh, it's fascinating, especially when we in Australia consider Afghanistan and uh, Kabul as we only get we get these stories about bombs. Mm. We get these stories. I mean, and we've sent we our big present to Afghanistan are soldiers, effectively. <laughs> yeah, lots of them. <laughs> um, and look, you know, the bombs did drop, but there's a lot of time between the bombs. Um, yeah. And you actually have a society that survives and, and actually functions quite normally between those sporadic attacks, and therefore you can actually have things develop like a music scene and you know we watched a band grapple with the situation at hand in their country and the political kind of instability and the security instability but they try to use their music as a way to sort of figure that out and to sort of you know find their own path which Which is what art's about exactly and uh, you're a photojournalist and this is your first documentary film this is your first feature yes so you've decided uh, and it's something that I've been exploring with people who make documentaries where they talk about now, they don't talk about uh, making a documentary per se, they talk about making a feature. Did you start off that way? Did you think about it in those terms? What were you thinking when you decided, ooh, I'm going to go for a moving image? Well, at the time, the mobile phone had just come in and the camera on the phone killed my industry as a photographer because I wasn't getting paid as much. So I picked up a video camera and I was doing documentation for NGOs and so forth. These boys walked in. So you were were learning how to actually Mm. uh, collect news stories. Yeah, I had zero, zero Yeah, but it's fascinating, isn't it? I I just was, I I was a documentor by by raw uh, kind of uh, process. uh, And the thing that I learned about doing, using your camera on uh, video is, 
that uh, you've got to hold it. You can't. You t- how long? You. It's not the same as people think it is. No, at least ten seconds. At least. At least. If fifty, right. your editor's always like, "Why do you hold that so longer?" That's right. God damn it. Yeah. Give me um, more on either side. It's exactly. like making a dress. You've got to have seams. Yes, lots of seams. We call them handles, but the same as a seam. And when these boys walked into our studio, I had the video camera and I just went, "Oh look, Metal Music, Islamic Republic, great juxtaposition." press record and so for the first six months I had no idea what I was doing I was just documenting and I wasn't till the character Lamar who's the front man of the band started speaking out a in front of the camera and b on stage that I realized I had a character here that had a voice and then I was like oh there might be a film in this and so it started how old were they because it took seven years to make this they were anything from 18 to 22 Two at the time when the band started. Right. So okay. they're pretty young. They're pretty impressionable. Yeah. But um, then they, as they grow in their own identity, the danger zone as they get older does must increase. Yeah. Surely. So interesting. They started in 2009. That was the surge of troops by Obama. 30,000 troops came into the country in 2009. And what people might understand is as you bring in more troops, it actually exacerbates the the violence and so more troops actually makes more deaths well of course of course great great little uh, uh, equation there so what, the boys what did, they, what did they say they say if you want peace you've got to make war yeah who the hell says, says that? that i know no. anyway so the boys came in uh it was that surge and by 2011 the violence had reached its peak and the band had actually reached its peak. They were hugely famous in the country. And so that was a correlation that we sort of watched interestingly and just went right. And then by 2014, when we had the troop withdrawal and the, the exodus of most Western forces and the expat community, the band imploded and finished. Huh, so there's a nice trajectory between both, which correlates quite interestingly. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I don't know why, but that's just the way the world turns. Yeah, well, but you've got your story. Yes, I do. I was lucky enough to be there at the right, right time, time, the right place. The place yeah. yeah, yeah, and to craft it into something. Now, you, like you said, uh, I, I've spoken to someone else who was a uh, did a, their first documentary, and they were doing it about fighting, boxing, and they did have a story. There was a story, but they had to learn about what it was that they were looking for. Because it's all very well to take a whole lot of uh, images, etc., but um, it has to, a film requires uh, a narrative, effectively, yes. unless you're doing, um, I mean, a poetic piece, which you know there that's another methodology. Uh, but uh, he was saying things like uh, he realised when he was looking at a person's face that that look was the look that he needed to keep. And that sort of thing, you know, keeping the camera running at a particular time. Uh, You had lots of footage. Uh, How did you craft it together? I mean, look, in the early years, we just documented their their evolution, um, and we got that in the in the, in the can, as we would call it. But in in post, when we got to editing, we realised this film wasn't just about a band; it was about youth expression, is about um, you know young men, young men, and trying to find their pathway in life. But also, it was a lot about foreign policy in regards to what the money was spent in on in Afghanistan, in particular towards cultural funding, because I received funding to put on this festival. And so my festival... What festival? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Not to give the whole film away. No, but that, no, but who gave you money? <laughs> the Americans. 
Oh, they're mad. And, and then nine other embassies after that. What, because they wanted to feel like people were, they were nice guys? Well, look, you have what we call uh, cultural funding, which is the soft propaganda yeah. for these uh, agencies. As they drop bombs on civilians, they also want to convince civilians that they're bringing democracy to a country. So what you do, you, you, you create television programs, you open new newspapers, and you fund cultural projects. And I came up with a festival. Now, this festival ran for three years. We had multiple stages, multiple musicians. We had days where females were only uh, um, allowed. And so, you know, women's only days, for extension. And it was a very successful event. But at the same time, I'm taking money from the same people who are creating this war. And so it's quite a conflict of interest. And so I think that's something that we explore in this film is like, you know, you can spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on, on, a, on a, a war and also trying to rebuild a society. But what's effective and what actually helps and what is actually just money down the drain? Because obviously corruption in Afghanistan was rife. It still is. A lot of money wasn't even staying in Afghanistan. It was going back to the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I followed some of this stuff. Exactly. So you kind of, you touch on these things there's, in the film. There's a lot of money, one in poverty, and there's a lot of money in wars, and there's a lot of, yeah. yeah well, there are symbiotic Disasters. relationships. So, yeah. you know, you bring in the aid industry, which we, we would consider quite uh, symbiotic in regards to the war machine. So you have almost like a war machine and an aid machine. Yeah, you can't really have aid without war That's and right. vice versa. Except for natural disasters, of course. Yeah. And so... And make sure that you do it in someone else's country. Yeah, don't do it in your own. No. Because uh, that would just ruin everything, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so we tried to touch on this, and I think it's an interesting thing because the boys were reciprocal recipients of this aid, in a sense. Yeah, well, they got paid. Well, they got the stage. Yeah. They got the equipment. They got the audiences there, mm. which we provided for them. And therefore, they got their expression out, which was great for them. But you've got to now look at what's happening in the country. Five years later, the music scene has pretty much disappeared. When the with when the West withdrew, when we left, it all was a vacuum and, and got sucked up. And now there is almost nothing happening. And so you kind of ask yourself, was it all worth it? And that's what I'm doing with my next film. So the answer is not in the first film. We just touch on it. And now I'm trying to explore that in my next film. You're on Showreel on 3CR. We're looking at uh, a film called Rockable, made by an Australian filmmaker, Travis Beard. It's focusing on Afghanistan's first metal band, District Unknown. Before we continue with our conversation, let's hear a little bit more from District Unknown. This one's called Dying Bride. Thank you. 
go back to the crafting of the film, mm. you've obviously got motivations quite clear. Once you've got motivation, you know what it is you're doing, and so you know what to collect. What did you learn in that first making of a film, practically speaking? Tell me about the practical nature of it. I mean, look, it's all about getting your characters in the moment. Did you um, write a script? No, I see, I wasn't a filmmaker by, by, by education. I had no idea. And so what I did is I just went, I've got to get these shots. And I went and got my shot list and got that. And then I realized... But you did. You wrote a shot list. Yeah, it's not really a script, though. No, 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 no. But it is actually the uh, formulation of yeah. a of a recipe of a sort. Yeah, you, you have you formulated um, a, a, a concept. Yeah, exactly. And, and and so, sort of three quarters of the way through the film, I knew I didn't have X, Y, and Z, and a lot of that was just the real life. And the thing I found really interesting, you didn't is have the connecting bits. No, I didn't have what was behind the scenes. I had the band on stage. I had the band practicing. I had the band arguing. I had the band doing everything. But I didn't have the band at home in their daily life. And that's what a lot of people want to see. Yeah, right. They want to see family interaction. They want to see the downtime. They want to see the, the, the people what in the film. What does it mean? Yeah, what they do between the rock shows and everything else. And so that was what a lot, a lot of picking up was towards the end, was actually getting their lives as much as possible. Because in a country like Afghanistan, there are cultural and society kind of boundaries that you can't cross. I can't go and film his sister. No. I can't go and film his mum, for example. So you had to work around that. Very one-sided. Yeah. And so unfortunately, we had to blur some faces in some of the scenes because just out of respect, we were only able to finish his film because all the characters got out of Afghanistan. Oh, right. We have three living in the US, one in Australia and one in the UK. So therefore, there's no threat to them. But some of their family members still live there, so we had to blur faces to just to, out of respect, so that they wouldn't be endangered in the future. And plus, we don't film, we don't screen this film in uh, Afghanistan, only okay. internationally around the world. Yeah, cool. Okay, and uh, so in the editing, where did you do the editing? Uh, in a many places. We started here in Australia. We moved to um, uh, Serbia because I had an editor there, and then we moved to India. And then I finally got funding from Screen Australia and we finished it here. So we had a, a mix of editors over the years. Um, and that was just because of lack of funding. All right. And when you say we, is it a royal we or is there someone else that you're talking about? Well, eventually I had a co-producer, uh, uh, Brooke Silcox, who's based in Perth. But for the first six years, I was by myself. Right. Okay. And then you thought your intelligent approach re- made you realize that in order for this to become the finished project, you needed an intro into the professional world of filmmaking. Is that it? Yeah, I needed someone else to help me get into the industry, but also that third eye because I was too close to the subject. Cool. And I needed someone to step in and go, that's not important, that's relevant, and that can uh, progress therefore. And so that third eye was really important to actually see through the trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, of course. And then the other thing about it is that all these different people that you got to do with the the editing, see, in some cases what people will do, they'll do a lot of shooting, but what they'll do is then they'll uh, spend time uh, refining the... 10 hours that they've got down to five hours and they'll look at them again and then they'll bring it back down until they've got an, a, a certain amount around a particular notion that they then bring to the editor. Did you do that at all? Well, we did that through the different editors we had in, 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 in the in, That's in what the team. was going on. Yeah, and, and I didn't even choose that. That's just what happened. In hindsight, if I was 
in my new film, in any film I would make in the future, I would have the same editor from day one through to the end because that's you, so hard. It's really did. hard, but your editor knows every single cog in the machine. Therefore, that's whereas hard. I had five mechanics, yes. and every time I got a new mechanic into this machine, he had to learn how that machine worked, and yeah. that took weeks, if not months, to bring them up to speed. And therefore, that actually created lulls in the in the sort of film production. Um, in hindsight, you must be very experienced by now. Oh, I know a lot, and you I, I would say lot, to any yeah. budding filmmakers out there, and I do actually do some some educational talks at universities which have film departments. I say to them, "Great, go and do your your film studies; it's good, but go and make a film. It's the best way to learn." And I don't now now I don't need to go and study, but I kind of wish I got the foundations back then because it would have saved me probably a couple of years. But it is the best way to learn your craft is actually just go and make it, make some mistakes, make some errors, learn from them. And actually become a better craft and skill maker because of that. But you're a good picker. You picked a good story. Oh, it's all about the hook. Yeah. And from my first film and my new film now, you're always thinking about what's going to bring the audience in because you need that one liner and that one sort of contextual image that you give to the audience that's actually going to make them actually take the time in their very precious day because it's so time expensive to actually watch the first two, three minutes of your trailer and then therefore do they invest the 90 minutes in your film and that's the trick. That's the hardest thing about making film, films is finding that hook. So let's go to this new project that you've got. Uh, have you got a title? A yes. title? Cogs of War. Cogs of War. So we're looking at... Uh, As opposed to Pigs of War. Right? Well, actually, it was War Pigs, and war I was pig. using Black Sabbath as my sort of, you know, uh, <laughs> mentor there. But unfortunately, there's already been a film made with Dolph Lundgren in 2015, an action film called War Pigs. So I dropped that. Yeah. Cogs of War, because we're looking at what actually makes the war machine work, and that's why I mentioned the aid machine earlier on. And we have eight characters in this film. We have an NGO worker, a journalist, a soldier, a diplomat... We have the Taliban, etc. All these different cogs in the machine that actually perpetuate a war. And we're asking, why does that war perpetuate? And why do people get involved? And what are their motivations for going to war? Whether they're on the civilian side or the military side. And trying to figure out this model that we have that we use around the world as the West, intervening into countries. And a lot of time, actually perpetuating the situation rather than fixing the situation. And I don't really have the answers yet because I'm still making the film, but I think my characters will help me explore this area of you know, quite a destructive industry, both the, the arms industry and the profits that are made from that, but also the aid industry is not always assisting the situation and sometimes they're actually impeding the situation because of bureaucracy, because of all the different parts just, of the machine. Just as a matter of interest, are you also going to have a character in it from a family that are just trying to keep ahead of the game so they don't get squashed? Yeah, so we have one Afghan character and he has been in Afghanistan since 2001. He was born there, obviously, and he still lives there now. So he chose not to leave. He chose That's not right. to be part of that exodus that went to Europe and, 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 other, and other parts of the world. And he's our main character, actually. And we use him as the vehicle to say, well, look, you know, with everything that's going on, I still love my country and I choose to stay here. But he's also a part of that machine because he works as a translator for journalists. He's a fixer, as we uh, term him. And so he makes money off the war. We all make money off the war. And this is why we have to ask, you know, what is your part in this uh, bigger picture? Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so when uh, when is uh, Rock a Bull going to show? It's going to be at Nova, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so Rock a Bull is at Nova on the 14th 
at Dendy in Sydney on the 16th, at the Lido in Hawthorne on the 17th, and then we have Geelong, Castlemaine, we have Brisbane on the 1st of June, we also have Perth, I think, on the 23rd, maybe? Yes, we're all over the country, um, so look out for it and come and see it. Obviously, I'll be at every f- screening for Q&As, and we have a few special guests, including here in Melbourne, we have Lamar, who's in the film. Oh, wow. He's going to be in the Q&A, and he's quite a character when you put a microphone what in front of him. What does he do here now? He's a security guard at Monash University. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That's amazing. I know. It's a big change for him. Um, But he's fitted in. He actually also works as a security guard at Cherry Bar. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Thanks for coming in and talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Good stuff. That's it for Showreel this week. And uh, we'll go out with another piece from District Unknown, the featured artists in uh, Rockable, a film by Travis Beard. This one's called Modern Natural. Coming up next is Published or Not. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.